been so wonderful to be with you here at Timberlake for these last several days. What a privilege, what an honor, and what a great church. So very blessed to be among you and to be especially with your dear pastor and his wife, such cherished friends and prayer supporters. Thank you so very much for what you stand for and how the Lord is working in the midst of you as you hold forth the word of life. If you would turn in your Bibles back to Psalm 39 as it was read just a moment ago. Psalm 39. The sense of Psalm 39, like some of the other pieces of wisdom literature in our Old Testament, underscores the sense of the short and fragile life that we all live. You don't have to turn to some of these passages that I'm going to quote, but I do want you to listen to them because they resonate so much in their unity with Psalm 39. For instance, Solomon of old in the book of Ecclesiastes starts out chapter 1 by declaring this, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but earth remains forever. That's true, isn't it? Families are rising with all kinds of expectation and joy, and then family members see their beloved ones go so quickly. So fragile is this life. Or how about Moses in Psalm 90? You're undoubtedly very familiar with this. Moses says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. It says in verses 9 and 10, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. And if you were reading and listening when Psalm 39 was read just earlier, verses 4, 5, and 6, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. David says, let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, Selah. Selah is probably a musical term, uh, perhaps a way of signaling um, a musical interlude where you're not singing, You're just hearing the music play, but maybe it's for the sake of you meditating on the various stanzas as the music is being played. David says, surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. So when you and I contemplate the brevity and the fragility of life, 
we do so indeed and quickly realize how life is so fleeting. King David is right to ask Yahweh to allow him to know, to understand that his life is so swiftly ending. And of course, we should, by way of comparison, recognize immediately that since we are so fleeting in this life, so eternal is God. That's surely one of the things that we need to know. As we ponder life, we need to know that life is short, but it's long enough to be able to acknowledge the truth about God, about watching out what our tongues say, the acknowledgement of our sin, the discipline for that sin, and our need for contrition and prayer, and to be forever reminded about the end of our days. For me, the accentuation of how fleeting life is has been hitting me like a torrent. When I was just at the threshold of entering the decade of my 50s, I'm now in my early 60s, 61 years old, will be 62 in June. As I was entering the decade of my 50s, just right on that doorstep, I experienced the first of those tragedies, the death of a loved family member, extended family. My mother was married three times and divorced three times, the third of those being my own father. And there was a time where she called me and said, I want to marry again, and I want you to perform the wedding ceremony. That was in December of 1987, quite a long time ago. They weren't believers, but I thought it best to actually marry some unbelievers to each other, because I think it's better to have unbelievers be married than cohabitate together who are not married and doing what they do, and so I agreed to do it. So I married them to each other, and they lived for 22 years together, and then my stepfather, who I didn't grow up with, but I knew him, of course, well, and I loved him, he came to die. And that's where it all began to break loose. He died, and then my own mother died. She died in 2016. She was going to a hospital there in the Little Rock, Arkansas area. She was being treated for a blood clot behind her right knee, and apparently sometime during the night, which was actually Christmas Day of 2016, Apparently that clot had burst, went to her heart, and she died of a massive heart attack in the middle of the night. I got a call early that morning. I was living and ministering in California, told about her sudden death. She did not know the Lord. She had lived a very profligate life. She was volatile and angry and pushy and it was a hard upbringing. She was a person who largely only thought about herself. She was divorced and she took my sister and me to Arkansas to live with my grandparents because she had no skill, no job, no money. We were in California at the time, and so we packed everything we had, which of course was not much, and drove in a pink Studebaker Lark. Now, none of you young people know what that is at all. And we drove to my grandmother's house, her mother, and that's where I grew up in the state of Arkansas. 
And she was a person who was very difficult to live with. There was always tension in the home. I was a latchkey kid. And so, having come to Christ, as you heard earlier, as a freshman in college, began to study the Word of God and then went on to seminary in California, there was always this hope and prayer that my mother and stepfather would genuinely come to Christ. And when she died, I had just been with her about two weeks prior, around the Christmas season, as I said. And I once again saw the challenges of what an unbeliever says and does. So when I got that call, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And it seemed that no sooner than that occurred, in 2018, my second child, first son, and his wife, who already had a son, were joyfully experiencing the birth of their second son, Calvin Theodore. He was a little bit premature, but it wasn't particularly alarming. They had him in the NICU unit, the neonatal intensive care unit, there two minutes from my home. So we were visiting this little guy and watching him, and they were monitoring him very closely. He was doing well, first four days of his life, and they wanted to give him just a tad more nutritional supplement, so they inserted what's called a pick line. And unbeknownst to all of us, including those at the hospital, it had not been properly sterilized. And so one day later, he became very, very sick. The bacteria spread throughout his little bitty body, and on day six, he died. The reason why it was so tragic, of course, on a human level is because life for him was just beginning. You know how we talk about, especially as young people, we've got our whole lives in front of us. And for him, of course, in the providence of God, it wasn't true. And so we were trying to minister to my son and his wife and Our whole family gathered around them, including my wife, Beth, who, in 2018, was struggling herself with major cancer. It was on December 2nd of 2017. I was actually preaching in Baltimore, Maryland. There was a biblical counseling conference just before the Sunday, just like this. And I finished that biblical counseling weekend, and got a call from my wife who said, I have something to tell you. I woke up this morning and I knew I wasn't doing well, but I was disoriented. And Our two daughters who were still in the home, one of those was going to be married one week from that day. And they had a busy day ahead trying to determine how to continue all the preparations for this wonderful wedding. And so she said the girls took me to the ER because something was terribly wrong. Now my wife was incredibly healthy. She was so active raising eight children, and I occasionally help. I never saw my wife in 30 plus years in raising those children ever take a nap. She was a go-getter, elegant, classy, godly. She was just the right one for me. Totally committed to ministry. Totally committed to her family. She said from day one when we met, I've only and ever had one vision and prayer, to meet a pastor and to be a pastor's wife. And she was. And she said, when I went to the ER, because of my 
brain fog. They did a scan of my brain and my chest, and they've determined that I have a major, what they believe is a cancerous tumor in the left lobe of my lung, and it has already metastasized in at least seven brain tumors in my brain. And I just said, no, 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 how could this be? I kept thinking, what about those passages where your wife is being raised up and called blessed because she's got all of these children and grandchildren around her? to enjoy and to continue to nurture, take care of. I tell you, if I was the head of the home, she was sure its backbone. And so we talked, and I said, I'm coming home right now. And my colleague who was bringing me to Baltimore drove me to Dulles. I couldn't even get on the plane by myself. I had to have assistance. There was a TSA officer who was very kind and walked me right, right through a special situation for someone who was grieving and led me by the arm right to the cabin of the plane. I sat in the back and for almost five hours I cried, prayed, cried, prayed, asked the Lord for mercy, kindness, an extension of life. When I got to the hospital at about 3 o'clock in the morning, I just hugged her. We cried, we prayed, we cried, we prayed. That morning I walked into our church, wasn't supposed to be there, somebody else was preaching, and I told the congregation exactly what I'm telling you now. They worked steroids to relieve the pressure on her brain, because she so desperately wanted to be at that wedding. And she was. And the Lord ministered to us, as Pastor Brian said, two years, four months. We had chemotherapies and surgeries and all kinds of ways and means that God extends in His providence and grace a person's life who has stage 4B metastatic lung cancer never smoked a day in her life. So, can you imagine a woman who receives that diagnosis December of 2017 who's now in that state burying her grandson? And that wasn't all. Less than two months after my own wife's death, she died 3.30, March 30th, in 2020 at 4.40 p.m. And less than two months after that, I got a call from my niece who said, have you talked with your sister, my mom, in a while? And I said, well, I've tried. I, I just preached a resurrection message sermon where I talked about Beth's home going and the resurrection of the body and the hope we have in Christ. And I thought she might be encouraged by that. So... As an unbeliever, I wanted to send her that message so that she might herself come to faith in Christ. And so I sent it, and she never responded. And my niece said, that's because she's dying. She's in hospice care, and they think she might last a week. She has drunk and smoked herself to death. I said, I'll be there immediately. I got on a plane and was there at 3 o'clock the next afternoon at her bedside pleading with her to repent. She could not communicate. But she kept with her hands pleading with her daughter, my niece, to give her more cigarettes to smoke. She died without Christ. I thought surely after these five deaths I'd get some level of respite. But less than a year... I received another phone call that my favorite aunt had also died. 
I had to go back to Arkansas and perform that funeral service. And so as I thought through things, the death of my stepfather, my mother, my grandson, my wife, my sister, and now my aunt, life is a vapor. It's fragile. It's here today, gone tomorrow. So what does King David have to tell us? What, what encouragement, what word from the Lord can we receive? Well, it's right here in Psalm 39. I see four clear ways, four clear ways that this psalm of King David is here to help us understand the fragility of life. Be careful, be clear, be contrite, and be consistent. Now that's pretty easy, isn't it? Be careful, be clear, be contrite, and be consistent. This is David pleading with his own soul in a lament psalm. A psalm of lament, a, a, a cry, a cry heavenward. Lord, help me make sense of the world. Help me make sense of my life. Help me make sense of this very fast and fleeting existence. The first thing he says to us as he was coaching his own soul is be careful. But be careful about what? Well, it's, I think, something like this. Be careful to whom and just how we talk about life's difficulties. Be careful to whom and just how to talk about life's difficulties. I suppose that if I had closed the message right after the illustrations that I gave you about these six deaths, it would not only be the worst sermon in the world, but it would be the grand bummer of all sermons. Because there would be no hope in that. There would be no biblical teaching. There, there would only be a man standing in a pulpit saying life is hard. It's challenging. It's difficult. And I might even suggest that you would have someone who isn't reading their Bible carefully or perhaps even reading it at all say something like this, and you know that God, that God of Christianity, that, that God that you say you love and serve, he's arbitrary. He's capricious. He's unfair. And perhaps he doesn't know what he's doing. Or perhaps even worse, he knows what he's doing and he's sadistic. He's maniacal. In addition to being unfair and unwieldy, and arbitrary and capricious, he gets some level, it seems, of delight out of it. And David says, be careful. Be careful how you represent God. Notice what he says in the first couple of verses. To the choir master, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. I believe that's actually the first verse of the psalm. It's actually verse 1 in the Hebrew text of our Bibles it's a statement of who's writing the psalm and, and in what context. So this is a song. Now, it's a lament psalm, to be sure, but it's to Jedithan, who is probably the choir leader, and David has written it, and here is the first stanza. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. So now we're getting to understand that David is saying, when life hits you right in the face, and in my case, in the face of abject loss, six times over in the decade of your 50s where you're, you're virtually thinking about nothing except who's going to die next. Be careful how you speak to unbelievers about such things. 
No, it's not just that you want to say, I, I, I better be careful because I may say something wrong here and there. Now, what David is really saying here is that you and I must have a conscious and exalted view of our God and His character, just like we learned in the previous session, so as to proclaim exactly what kind of God we have. Who He is. What is His character. What is He like in the midst of a life of utter fragility. Life is fragile. We live in a sin-cursed world. Things break down. Sin and disease is all around us, and people die. We're all going to die. And David says, I better guard my mouth. I better represent God accurately. Now, it doesn't mean when he says, be careful now about what you say, how you represent your God, that's not all of it. David actually is saying one thing in a right way, with a right heart, but it really, in one sense, while he's representing his God to the unbelievers around him, that's a good thing. It has not, as of yet, done anything for him spiritually. Why? Because notice what he says. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. I still had this internal churning to understand, to, to get it, to respond to it in the right way. He says, my heart became hot within me. As I mused, as I thought about things, as I thought about life, and as I thought about death, and as I thought about disease, and as I, as I thought about war, and as I thought about leadership, and as I thought about the sin-cursed world in which we live, as I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. I mean, we assume that what David is talking about, especially and particularly toward unbelievers, is how to represent God's means, God's ways, God's working, even if it doesn't always mean that you and I are happy and clappy. Because life isn't like that at all, is it? There's always going to be something. There's always going to be a challenge. There's always going to be an issue. There's always going to be sorrow. That's the world we live in. And how do you tread the fine balance between being able to represent your God accurately and to continue to go through all of the challenges and vicissitudes of life? It's a hard balance. You say, well... It's easy for you because as a preacher, you, you know these languages and you know how to teach them and you can coach yourself. It's not easier for me. I'm, I'm right where you are. I'm just trying to struggle to figure it out just like you are. And of course, there are going to be times where you and I are going to say, is God good? Is this right? Why all the death? And, and why now? And why so quickly? And it's changed my whole life. It's, it's irreparably changed everything. But we still have to live in this world. We still have to work it through. And we have to be careful that we're representing our God for who He truly is. And it's not easy. David's commitment is to be very careful how he re represents God to the unbelieving world and what a commitment it is to watching our words and seeking to preserve the reputation of our God before a watching, unbelieving world. And at the same time, 
Continue to work it through in your own heart. Continue to coach your own heart. Continue to look for how you can be prevented from both thinking and saying things that misrepresent him. Boy, that's a tall order. That means you've got to get your head in this book. It means you've got to study and read like you've never read the Bible before. You've got to meditate. You've got to pray. Your heart is churning within you of grief and sorrow at the death of the ones that you love the most on the entire planet. You've got to find out about the character of God. You've got to read. You've got to study. You've got to get in groups. You've got to get help. And is that not what God wants us to do? Does he bring such things in our life that drive us to know him more? That drive us to read about him and study about him and his pristine character and his good will and purpose in our lives, regardless of what we assume is happening in the circumstances upon this earth? Yes. I tell you, Psalm 119.68a has become something to me of a life verse. God is good and does good. Didn't we just sing about it? God is good. Even though I can't figure him out at times. Be careful. And I love how raw and real and earnest David is. He said, I was mute. I I was silent. My peace, it was to no avail. My distress grew worse. It became hot within me. It burned. But he was still working through it. He didn't give up. He still asked God to make his mouth careful for how he was going to represent his Savior. Number two, Not just be careful, be clear. Be clear. Be clear about what? Well, you and I have to be clear about the true condition of man's utterly short life. And particularly and personally, to know how you and I in that life of ours, we should live. Be clear about your mission. Be clear about your path. Be clear about who you are and about who God is and about how we are to follow this God and trust this God and love this God and obey this God. That is my mission. How we conduct ourselves as we live. It's going to be short. It's going to be here today, gone tomorrow. David knows that. Look at what he says in verse 4. O Lord, O Yahweh, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. I, I suspect there are people, and of course unbelievers in droves, who don't ever think about this. They don't say this. They don't acknowledge this. They say, no. I got a lot of money, I got a lot of time, I'm on easy street, I've got it all wired. You're not thinking, you know, my life is so fleeting. Especially the young, especially you young people. You don't know that you have a long life. Only God knows that. So David says, behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. You know, what is the breadth of your hand? Just, just raise your hand. Take your thumb and your pinky and measure. Two inches, four inches. Some of you big boys, six inches. That's your lifespan. Here to here. Then it's gone. That's the breadth of our lives. You say, that's not long. That's his point. My lifetime, he says, is as nothing 
before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. So you have breadth and breath. Length and oxygen. Here's our life. You ready? That was it. It started and it ended. And it's happening so fast. No wonder he says, Selah. That's that, that's that term. Stop the words. Listen to the music and think about the words. He says, surely a man goes about as a shadow, like a phantom. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. That's what this life is. It's a life. Though it has its joys, though it has its happinesses, it's also a life of toil. We've read Genesis 3. Man is going to, by the sweat of his brow, toil. And there's every rose garden with an abundance of thistles. That's the way life is. Then he says, man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. You know what instantly came to my mind when I read that off the printed page? I thought of Jesus in the Gospels where he's teaching his point and that point is the illustration of the man who owned many barns. Do you remember that? And he owns all these barns, and he keeps amassing so much produce, so much commerce, that he's getting fat and sassy. And he says to himself, Self, I tell you what I'm going to have to do with all my commerce, all my produce. I'm going to have to actually build even bigger barns so that everything that I have done by my lonesome can be all protected safe. Ah, the abundance is all mine. Jesus says, you fool! Tonight, your soul is required of you. He's going to die that night. Now, upon your death, who will own what you possess? That's how quick this is. You've never seen a Purse carrying a U-Haul, have you? Can't take it with you. It's gone. Well, no, but see, I'm doing this for my grandkids. You don't know if they're going to live. You don't know if the world's coming to an end. You don't know. We don't know. Does that mean be lazy and slothful and do nothing? No. It means don't trust in your riches. Uh, don't try to work up an abundance with no mere thought of the hereafter. That's what David's saying. David's answer is, if you're assuming that part of your answer might be a complaint about God for his dealing with you, and if it further means that there's a possibility, no, maybe even a probability, that God could be indicted as either unloving or unwise in his dealings with you or me, and perhaps even further, that God is arbitrarily and capriciously punishing us unfairly, or so you may be tempted to think, you better first be sure about who you're talking about and who it is who is lodging the complaint in the first place, and it's little old me. The puny person standing in the mammoth presence of a holy God. Who do we think we are? To question the character of God, the goodness of God, the power of God, the mind of God, the goodwill of God, the grace of God, the peace of God, the blessing of God. I think there's a whole lot of humility going on in this psalm, don't you? There's a third. A third point David makes, not just being careful and being clear, but being contrite. I mean, he's just led us down the primrose path. He's just said, look, you've got to be careful about how you represent the Almighty to people. You want them to know Him. You want people to come to Christ. So you better be careful about how you represent God, especially in a time of tragedy. But you also have to be very, very careful and clear 
about how this God is represented, who he truly is, and at times when you and I are going through all of these great challenges that are so very difficult, and they are, nobody's minimizing that. The difficulties of life can make you either proud or humble. It's the same sun that melts the ice, that also hardens the clay. And you can get hardened about this. You can indict God all you want. And if you do, and if you're tempted to do that, and even in a lament psalm like David, he's going to come to himself and say, I I better be contrite. I better have some honest contrition because in my heart, if I'm not only misrepresenting God to to unbelievers, and I'm also potentially going to indict God to believers, and even if my heart, as the king of Israel, is not representing God as I ought, I better not examine him and think he's arbitrary or capricious or unfair or unkind. I better check my own motives. And I better say to myself, I need to repent. I need to repent. Notice what he says in verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. We saw that in Psalm 33, didn't we, just earlier. My hope is in you. And now look at his honesty, his transparency. Deliver me from all my what? What does it say? Transgression. He's acknowledging his sin. You see, unbelievers largely don't do that. Oh, I had a untoward moment. Forgive me. Oh, yes, I mess up every blue moon. Oh, but you don't understand. You see, and on and on it goes. Prevarications and excuses. David says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to acknowledge my transgressions. I'm going to be contrite. He says, do not make me the scorn of the fool. I'm not going to act like the fool, the unbeliever. I am mute. I I do not open my mouth. In other words, I'm not going to contend with the Almighty. Does that sound like Job? Sounds like Job, doesn't it? We learned about that this weekend. Job finally sort of got up the gumption to say, I want to have a courtroom scene with God. I think I can win the case. David says, no, I'm going to close my mouth. Why? For it is you who have done it. Whatever this is, whatever is his challenge, whatever's going on at the heart of this, and I believe it's actually flattened out without the specifics, not in all the Psalms, but particularly in this one, because if you and I heard exactly what David was referring to, we might say, well, that doesn't apply to me. That's not something that I can can worry about because that's not my circumstance. I think they flatten out some of these psalms just because David wants everybody to say, you fill in the blank. Whatever that is that you're contending with in the Almighty. And for me, it might be so easy to say, my stepfather? My mother? My grandson? My wife? My sister? My aunt? You're piling on. And within a decade or so, or on either side of that decade, what was it, piling on time? No, I need to shut my mouth. You who have done it. You've got all the the wisdom, all the knowledge. And after he has gone under the rod, the rod of reproof, chastisement, discipline, He says, remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. I'm just just spent. Then he says, as a principle for life, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, he acknowledges transgression, sin. You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of the refiner's fire. 
where all of the dross, the impurities, the imperfections, however short your life and mine is, it's all about God's prerogative, who is good and does good, to take us like a moth and burn off what's there so that you and I can be a butterfly for His glory. Or it's the refiner's fire. It's all those precious metals, or so we think. We think it's shining. We think we're shining. We think we look so good. It's just pure gold, and it's a silver that, that's worth a lot of money, and, and it's so refined, and it's so elegant. And then it goes into the refiner's furnace. And it's tested seven times seven. And when it comes out, it's never looked better. Never looked more precious. Never more valuable. Because all the dross, all the wickedness, all the sin, all the transgression, all the presumptions that we think we know what God should do and why He should do it and when He should do it, it all is burned away and we're ready for heaven. So be contrite. And number four and last, be consistent. Be consistent. What do you mean, Lance? Be consistent about your ongoing need and request for peace and grace. I mean, he's just expressed his contrition. He uses the word transgressions. He's using the word sin. He's just like a moth. He's just a mere breath. We need to slow down and recognize that because of God's winnowing hand, his refining fire, I'm perishing, and God is there with peace and grace to give us what we so desperately need. You know, when you're in that refiner's fire, when you're in that trouble and toil, when you're in that tribulation and test, we do say uncle. Perhaps we say uncle too soon. Perhaps we want to get out of the trial and the test too soon, but it hasn't done yet all of its perfect work, and when it does, we come forth as gold. But it isn't without peace and grace. Look at verses 12 and 13. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. I mean, he's acknowledging that he's crying for it, that he needs it. He's praying to the Lord. He is praying. Hold not your peace at my tears. I need your stability, your wholeness, your completeness, the completeness of your work. Shalom. God's kindness, His peace, His wholeness. I need such peace. I'm crying, Lord. And what does our good and great and sovereign God do? He meets us right at the point of our need. And he says, I'm crying, Lord. That's what's happening in my life right now. I now live alone. My eight children are gone. I sometimes lay in my bed and I even involuntarily reach my hand over to make sure she's there. And she's not there. If you've had that experience, you know what I'm talking about. But you know who is there? God's peace. He's there. And he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And your tears are at their excruciatingly worst. Give me your peace. Hold it not. And he acknowledges again, I'm a sojourner, I'm a stranger, like a guest. It's like I'm a guest in the world. I just walk around, but I'm not a resident there. And doesn't the Bible tell us we're just aliens, we're just strangers, we're just here for a little while, then we're gone. Remember the song, 
great old song. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Lord, while I'm passing through this world, could you give me your abundant peace? And then grace. Do you see it here? Look away from me. That, To me, that take your gaze away from me, that I may smile again, is undoubtedly a smile of grace. I need your peace, and I need your smile. I've received your bruising discipline. Now I need your smile, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. And you and I, every day of our life, perhaps even when you're going through it in the worst way, every minute of your life, you're in tears. The trials are there. It's intense. Our God will extend for the children who ask Him extra measures of peace and grace. I'm sure there's not anybody here who needs any more peace or grace. Should I ask for a show of hands? Of course we all need it. It's a self-evident truth. It's axiomatic. I need grace every day. I need your smile every day. I need your peace. I need your comfort. I need your you to bring me to a wholeness and a fullness so that I'm consistently and evermore asking again. And he doesn't hold back. We have to be very careful and clear and contrite and consistent What a psalm this is. And what a balm to my soul. I trust for yours as well. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, this is our need and this is our prayer. And thank you that you answer us, 1 John 5, and if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us in whatever we ask because we know it will be given to us as we've asked it from him. May you allow us to be these things and to resonate with David in Psalm 39. To the glory of Christ, the good of his kingdom, and the expansion of his work in the world through us. In his name, amen.